Lord, we've come to the place in this service where we open the book of life and we glean treasures from its pages. We know that your word is quick. That means it's living. Your word is powerful. That means it is potent. It has potential. Your word, O oh Lord, is a discerner. It interprets the thoughts and the intentions of our heart when it is preached and when it is quoted. We know that your word is the one thing you promised would never return void, but it would always accomplish the purpose whereunto it is sent. I pray that that purpose would be accomplished today. Accept these feeble attempts of an unworthy servant to preach your word in Jesus' name. Amen and amen. There is a course of study in seminary that is called homiletics. It's actually a class that is to teach preachers how to preach. <laughs> well, if we've got a class, why do some do such a poor job? I know you're fixing to say. Well, uh, God gifts people and God gives different abilities and talents to people to do that special uh, ministry. One of the highlights of that ministry is they talk to you about gestures. They talk to you about uh, eye contact. They talk to you about all kind of things. One of the things they talk to you that you probably wish they would have talked more about is the length of the sermon. Yeah. And uh, they will tell you when you know you're running out of time, summarize and get to the main point as fast as you can. That came straight from an instructor in a homiletics class. When you know you're running out of time, in other words, you loaded your gun with more wadding than you had time to shoot it. And you're still on point one and the clock's already expired 30 minutes. And uh, you're uh, trying to, wanting to get to the main point and you hadn't got there yet. So you violate all the rules and you just summarize and get to the main point. Well, I've probably done that a few times, more than I'd like to admit. But there's a passage in the 11th chapter of the book of Hebrews, and it's in verse 32. And it talks about a person who just ran out of time. He was talking about all, all peoples of great faith and what great things they did. And uh, he realized, uh, I've about exhausted and uh, beat this point long enough that I need to move on. And he said, what more shall I say? What more do I have to communicate? And what more do I have to talk about? And uh, he said, for time would, would fail me. Uh, I don't have time to do this. And that is common language of a preacher, isn't it? I wish I had more time. I just don't have time to do this. And so many of you are really nice to me and you holler out, go ahead, preacher. And y'all don't think I see those looks y'all give those kind of people when they say something like that. But I do. He said, what more shall I say? I really don't have time. The, the message, which is written by Eugene Peterson, says I don't really have time to tell about Gideon and Barak and Samson and Japheth, about David and Samuel and the prophets. Now, I understand talking about David because he was the great king, right? And boy, if you go to Israel, one of the great sights that you'll see is David's tomb. 
It's a much visited place and very well uh, chronicled. Samuel stood head and shoulders above, above the, the prophets and was such a, a voice for God and anointing kings. I understand him putting those two guys there, but what about those other four? What possessed him to bring everyone's attention to Gideon and Barak and Samson and Jephthah? Why would he signal out those four? Well, we know about those guys. It was Gideon who defeated the Midianites, and it was Barak who defeated the Canaanites, and it was Samson who defeated the Philistines, and it was Jephthah who defeated the Ammonites. But that grouping of personalities are mentioned only once in the entire New Testament, and it's right there. And what possessed the writer of the book of Hebrews to put those four guys together when talking about great people of faith and great people who did great exploits and won battles and wrought miracles and had great uh, victories in God. Why are these four, how did they get up there and grouped together as they are? Well, I'm just going to tell you, there are four guys that had a lot of problems, but God used them anyway. Yeah, if you were looking for somebody to do great things, you probably wouldn't have selected any of these guys. Each one of them is a story about how God used somebody that wasn't really perfect for the part and were really equipped to do that, but God chose them to do something that was bigger than themselves. And they didn't often respond to it in a good way. Well, we're going to talk about those those four guys in a hopes that we'll all realize that God uses everybody, that God has a place in his plan and his program to use everybody and everybody can be a servant of the Lord. One thing these four have in common is they all appear in a certain section of the Bible that's called the Judges. Judges. Now, Judges is a chaotic time. It's a time when there's not a lot of order and there's not a, a lot of worship and a lot of right things going on. In fact, the time is characterized by a statement. It said, this was a time when everybody did what was right in his own eyes. Boy, I would hate to try to be a part of a, a group like that, wouldn't you? Where everybody did what they wanted to do, no matter how much it hurt anybody else or what it mattered to anybody. I'm going to have my way. I'm going to do it the way I want to do it. It's going to be my way or the highway, my way or trailways. <laughs> and some of you have had some experience dealing with people like that. Yeah, don't punch your husband. Husband, nothing. Do you see that look some of you guys gave your wife? <laughs> got to have it their way. Got to, got, to, got to be their way. And this was a time when that, that it was so chaotic and so, so mesmerized that everybody just did what was right in their own eyes. And God raised up uh, judges. He raised up people that would try to lead the nation. And right, there are times when they didn't deserve any leadership. I'm telling you the truth. But in God's hall of fame, and Hall of Faith in Hebrews 11, he mentioned some of these guys. And these guys, though they were imperfect and though they were flawed and though they had many, many problems, God honored their life. And bottom line is they made it into the hall. They made it into the book. 
well, I'll never make it into the book because the book's already written and already done with. Hey, but can you imagine four unlikely characters as these that made it into the book and made it into the hall? The first one we'll talk about is Gideon. How many of you know Gideon? He's the guy with a pitcher. He's the guy with a 300. He's the guy that God dwindled down his number until he got to where he could do things that God wanted him to do. And the writer of Hebrews says, I don't have time to tell you about Gideon. Well, I'm going to take time today to tell you about Gideon. Gideon was a, evidently a farmer and he raised grain because when God approached him, he was on a threshing floor. He appears on the scene at a time of great oppression. The children of Israel were under great, great stress and under great turmoil at the hands of their nemesis, their Midianites. I've stood where that battle took place. Can you believe that? It's at a place called Horrid Springs. And you can look across the valley and you can see where the Midianites were camped out there across that plain. And you can look around the well-watered uh, spring there at Harrod Springs where the children of Israel were camped out. And the Bible says that they were all gathered there for this great battle. God came to Gideon and sent an angel and he first addressed him this way. He said, blessed are thou, thou mighty warrior. The Lord is with you, O mighty warrior. God, you gotta be kidding this guy's pitching up hay in a threshing floor hoping to get some grain out of it. He doesn't have a sword in his hand or a spear. He doesn't have a shield. He's only got a pitching fork, a willowing fork. He, he's not able to do anything. And, and God approaches him and says, the Lord is with you, mighty warrior. Is it possible that God sees things in us that we don't see ourselves? Is it possible that God sees potential in us that our family and our friends or our neighbors don't recognize? Because I don't think he had a friend that would call him a warrior. Certainly not a fighter. He was just one of the crowd that was oppressed by the same group that oppressed everybody else. Same problems everybody else had. But God singled him out and sent to him, sent an angel to say, the Lord is with you and you're a mighty warrior in verse 12 of Judges 6. Now Gideon was not a man of great faith, but he was a man of weak faith. But he was a man that God used in spite of his weak faith. I love those passages in the scripture that talks about people of great faith. Don't you? There lived a woman named Dorcas who was of great faith. There was a lady in the church at Corinth whose name was Phoebe, and she was in great faith. She had great faith. Wow. Women that do great things for God that are mentioned throughout the scriptures there because they have great faith. Is it possible that God would use somebody with weak faith? Yes, and he does. Because when this angel came and said this to Gideon, Gideon said, who, me? The Lord wants me? you got, you got to be kidding. I, I'm not trained. I've not been to West Point. I don't have a degree in weaponology. I wouldn't, I wouldn't recognize a situation, military situation, if I saw it. I'm just a sod buster. I'm just a clodhopper. 
I don't know anything about war. And God said, yes, but you're a mighty warrior. You see, God sees you as you can potentially be. God sees you as the potential that lies within you when your life is surrendered to God. Gideon said, no, you, you don't want me. You've, you've got to be kidding. You really don't want me. And God said to him, I'm going to use you to deliver my people. The angel didn't stutter. The angel was very clear, but Gideon just could not believe. He said, you're the man that God desires to use to deliver the Israelites. He just could not fathom how God could possibly use an ordinary person like him. Well, he assembled a group and got some men of Israel together, and he started doing the things that, that a, a military leader would do. He got some men together, and, and he even sent the, the challenge out to the people of Midian and said, you want to fight? We're going to fight. You want a battle? We got a battle. You want a confrontation? We've got a confrontation. And here they are gathered in the valley of Midian. He's camped at Horrid Springs. The enemy, you can see him across the plain. And suddenly he begins to doubt. And suddenly he begins to say, God, I really don't know this. I don't, I'm not convinced that you're, you're not playing tricks on me here. I'm not really convinced this is going to have a good outcome. I, I'm rather inclined to believe that disaster awaits us out there on that battlefield. I, I don't know about this. And the Bible said he put a fleece before the Lord because of his second thoughts. He's still not sure he's the right man. And at that point, Gideon asked God to give him a sign. You remember what it was? Unmistakable proof. He said, here is a, a fleece. He put a fleece and asked God to make the fleece wet and the ground dry. When we get up in the morning, he said, the fleece will be wet, but the ground will be dry. So the next morning when he got up and he walked out, the fleece was wet and the ground was dry. Now, what would you conclude? Ah, come on, talk to me. What would you conclude that God was with him? That God had told him right, right? Well, this guy still wouldn't believe it. He said, well, I tell you what, let's do, God, let's do another test. Let's change this thing around and let's make the fleece dry and the ground wet this time. So the next morning when he got up, ground was wet, fleece was dry. I'm so glad God's patient with us. Sometimes we just get into stupid mode. And God says, well, if we'll just be patient a little bit, maybe he'll come around or maybe she'll come around. And that's what happened for, for Gideon, for God let him know. God finally made him believe that what the Lord had told him he was going to do. In fact, the fact is Gideon made a great leader once God was able to get him past his fear. He became a great military leader. He became what God said he could become when he got past his fear. You see, fear will paralyze you and fear will put you in a seat of do nothing. Fear will cause you to be so intimidated that you won't dare step out there by faith on a promise of God. You see, faith is believing that God can do what you cannot do within yourself. Yes, God wants you to 
dream bigger things than you can really do yourself. God wants you to see a vision and dream visions that are, would stretch you to the limit to be what God wants you to be. But you'll never reach that place until you get past your fear of putting your life in the hands of God. If you read Judges 7, you'll find that God used Gideon in that nighttime surprise, remember? And he put those 300 guys with those pitchers and those candles, and they started screaming and hollering, and the enemy, the Ammonites, thought that something, Midianites thought that something bad had happened, and they ran, and there was a great victory that was wrought for God. And that lets us know this, God can use even weak faith. I want you to get that. Number two is a character named Barak. Barak, who in the cat hair is Barak? Well, you probably didn't notice him because I didn't mention Deborah. Because anytime you find Barak's name, you'll always find Deborah's name. Because Barak was so timid and so backward and so intimidated that he had to have somebody else to scotch him up all the time. He never could stand on his own two feet and look a situation in the face and say, greater is he that is in me than he that is in the world. He could never just stand on his own two feet and look at a difficulty and say, I'll get through this because my God is with me. He could never look at a set of circumstances and feel like, hey, I, I'm able to do this. I can do this. I can do this. My God is greater. And the power and the relationship that I have with my God, that in all things I am more than a conqueror through Jesus Christ. He always causes me to triumph. Always. But unfortunately, Barak was not like that. He leaned on a woman, and thank God she was a strong woman. Now, you ladies are going to like this. You girls will shout for me this morning because I am going to ring your bell. Buddy, Deborah was a strong woman. In fact, she was the judge. What? Are you kidding me? She was the judge in Israel? She was the leader of Israel? Yes. Why? Because no man was big enough to do it. I told you you'd like me, women. Hey, praise God. We're going to get these guys today. Y'all hang with me. Isn't it something that in most churches, leadership roles are done by women because no man will do it. Nobody to step up. Nobody to be counted as a leader. So a woman was a leader. You mean the spiritual tide in Israel had fallen so that there was not a male anywhere that would be the leader? Nope. Nobody wanted that job. They would say, that's a suicide job. But it is something that a woman took a suicide job 
And she is good at it. Well, when Deborah got the word in Judges chapter 4, she'd got the word that God was going to answer prayer, that God was going to do something. God stirred in Deborah's heart a revival and stirred in her heart a battle plan. Now listen, she not only sent word to Barak, look at this, she sent word, Judges 4 and 6 and 7, she sent for Barak, son of Abinoam, from Kadesh and Naphtali, and said to him, the Lord, the God of Israel, commands you, go and take with you 10,000 men of Naphtali and Zebulon, and lead, and lead, and lead, and lead, on the way to Tabor, Mount Tabor, I will lure Sisera, the commander of Jabin's army, and his chariots and his troops to the Kishon River, and I will give him into your hands. Well, Deborah not only sent the word, God wants to use you, she said, and here's the plan. I not only will send you the message of summons, but I'll send you the plan. You don't even have to think about it. You don't have to come up with a strategy. I've already got a strategy for it. I've already got a plan. And God has already given me assurance of victory. Well, now you would think that Barak would just be jumping up and down. Where's my armor? Get my sword. Let's go to work here. On one hand, it's very simple. God gave the battle plan and he gave promise of victory. All he had to do was rally the troops and go into battle and win. You'd think that would be something someone who had faith would do. How did a guy like Barak make it into the 11th chapter of Hebrews? How did he get in the book? How did he get into the hall of faith? Look at verse 8. Guys, I'm sorry, but this one's going to kill us. And Barak said to her, if you go with me, I'll go. But if you don't go, I'm not going to go either. If I can't take my crutch with me, if I can't take my lean on person, then I'm not going to go. I'm sorry. I know I'm needed. And I know God wants me to do it, but I'm sorry, but if you're not going to go, I'm not going to go. Sorry, but ain't that pathetic? Isn't that pathetic? I just can't get over that. I'm just so flabbergasted by it. We're all taught it's a man's job to saddle up and take John Wayne, go out there like Luther Cockburn and shoot him up. What kind of a man says, honey, I'm not going to go if you don't go. That strong woman that she was, that great leader, didn't like his response. What could have forced such a weak, mealy-mouthed, wishy-washy answer like that? Well, we find out in the next verse that the Canaanites had something that the Israelites didn't have. They had iron chariots. Now, what did that mean? Arrows won't do you any good. 
that means they've got something that we don't have. That means they are stronger than we are, and it's stupid to go out there and fight them knowing that they've got more firepower than we've got. And God said, that's not a problem. I've told you you would win if you'll just go fight. Come on, somebody. God's just looking for somebody that will take him at his word and will go out there and do the things he commands us to do. God says, I'll supply the miracle. I'll supply the victory. I'll supply whatever you need. And the Bible said that when they got out there and they were were fighting against these enemy, the Bible said God calls the storm. You mean God commands storms? You mean God controls storms? And the Bible said it rained. And it rained. And it rained. And it rained. And those iron chariots couldn't move because they stuck in the mud. And were sitting ducks for the Israelites to pick them off. It's like shooting fish in a barrel. You see, when God tells you I've already arranged the victory. I've already put in motion a victory for you. Just stand in faith and believe and you'll see the salvation of the Lord. Hallelujah. I believe that's what God is saying to harvest today. That don't be afraid of 2020. Don't be afraid of what might happen in 2020. Well, I'm not really at my most faithful right now. Well, God uses people who aren't at their best. Well, I'm not really the strongest in my prayer life. Well, God uses people who are not the strongest. What I'm trying to get over to you, you don't have to be perfect for God to put you in his will and do something miraculous in your life. No matter how great that enemy seems to be or how difficult the situation seems, God is greater than fiery darts. And he's greater than arrows that fly by night. And he's greater than giants who seem impossible. God sent a storm and flooded the Kishon River, trapping the iron chariots. And it turned into a slaughter, a rout, a total victory for God's people. And you know what happened to the king, Sisera? I like to just call him Sissy. <laughs> you know what happened to Sisera? There was a woman. Come on, gals, this is getting better all the time. There was a woman named Jael. And Jael tracked Sisera down. And when she tracked him down, she tricked him got him immobilized, and she pegged him to the ground. Boy, you girls ought to just be running wild in this place. Wonder Woman got on the trail of a king, a wicked king, and tricked him and got power over him and tied him up and put pegs in the ground and pegged him to the ground. Wow. And she went over and she said to Barak, she said, come 
and I will show you the man that you're looking for. Can you believe that? She'd already had him pegged to the ground, tied up, and she goes to Barack and says, come on over here, and I'll help you find the man you're looking for. I'd like to have seen the look on Barack's face when he walked up and saw what J.L. had done to the king. Well, I can't explain it, but I reckon it's so. I think there's a bit of irony in that, that God took a woman to show Barack, Deborah's your crutch, but she's not the only one that's got faith. She's not the only one that can do great things. She's not the only one. Praise God. What a turnaround that was. I've got to hurry because you know the one that's next. Samson. What was the matter with Samson? You remember, don't you? Remember from Sunday school class on that flannel graph board? Do you remember when he used to cut out them little figures and put them on the flannel graph? You remember that story they used to tell about Samson? How great he was? How mighty he was? How he defeated the Philistines and tied foxes' tails together and set fields on fire and took the gates of Gath and put them on his shoulders and ran off with them? And how they did such great things, killing thousands of Philistines at one time. But there's so much more to the story of Samson. His life is such a tragic tale of somebody who had it all and threw it away. We know about his humiliation. We know about his eyes being plucked out. I mean, we know how he got revenge by killing 3,000 Philistines in one of the most dramatic death scenes in the Bible. But there's more. No man in the Bible started out with as much going for him, and no man ended with less. He could not manage what God gave to him. He was a man of faith with a weakness for women. He was a man of prayer, but he was given to uncontrollable fits of anger. He was a leader in Israel, but he lusted after a Philistine woman. He was a man of God who lacked common sense. He was empowered by the Spirit, yet he often lived in the flesh. But somehow or another, he made Hebrews 11, and he got his name in the book. When we read Samson's story, we think all of that is in the sexual area where he had his problem. Well, I would submit to you that that wasn't really his problem. His problem was an emotional problem. He didn't know how to manage and control his emotions. He didn't know how to rule his own spirit. You see, the Bible said that the peace of God will rule in your hearts. The Bible tells us that we're to take our bodies under subjection, that we're to take control over our bodies. The story of Samson is about a, a man who rode an emotional roller coaster. He went from lust to anger to praise and in worship. He was just all over the place. He, he never could pin him down because he was something different every time you saw him. But his problem with emotional, he was out of control. Out of control. And we know the story about the ending of Samson, how they, he was there and being made sport of. 
You know, the humiliation that comes with a man's failure to be what God wants him to be. Proverbs 16 and 32 says, Better a patient man than a warrior, a man who controls his temper than one who takes a city. In other words, the Bible said you can take a city easier than a man can control his temper. Wow. You might describe Samson's anger as rage. It was out of control. And he did crazy things. Acted like a crazy man. Because his emotions were so out of control. But he shows up in Hebrews 11. Because he had great exploits that he did for God. Another is Jephthah. Jephthah, look at Judges 11 and 1. Put that up there for me, if you will, please. And this is the last of the four, so I'm getting close to being through. Judges 11 and 1. It introduces us. That whole chapter is about a man called Jephthah. Jephthah. Jephthah was a man who made a promise to God that he said, I've opened my mouth and I can't go back. Look at what it says. Jephthah, one of these four men that's mentioned in Hebrews 11, look what it says. Jephthah the Gileadite was a mighty warrior, and his father was Gilead, and his mother was a prostitute. Wow. His father was Gilead, his mother was a prostitute. Jephthah. The Gileadite. There are at least three persons that are named Gilead in the Bible, and there's two locations. In fact, the word Gilead means stones of testimony. It was at Gilead where they put the stones to be reminded of what God had done. Gilead, Kadesh Gilead, was a, a place of covenant, it was a place of testimony, it was a place of witness. It was a place of relationship. So here we have a man whose name was Testimony, and he fathered a child whose mother was a prostitute. Jephthah was born an illegitimate child. Jephthah was born out of wedlock. It made him a very angry person. It made him a, a person who didn't have a very good beginning. He didn't have family. He didn't have a lot of support. In fact, his family, his brothers and sisters that were by Gilead's wife, ran Jephthah off and disowned him and said, go away and don't ever come back. And Jephthah, the Bible said, left and went to a land called Tob, T-O-B. And there he assembled a gang. And he put some guys together that would be part of his gang. And he became riotous. And he became mean-spirited. And he was known throughout. Even word got back to Gilead what a fighter that Jephthah was. That Jephthah could whip people. He was, he was so strong in battle, nobody could fight him. He won every time. And the Bible said there was a time 
of the year when the people of Israel were besieged by these people from Ammon. Ammon. It's an area down what is now Jordan. It's south of the Transjordan area. If any of you remember down in the area where John the Baptist baptized, it's just south of that area is where we're talking about. And Jephthah was away in the land of Tob, and the Ammonites would come every year at the time of harvest. Here would come the Ammonites, and they'd steal and plunder and rob and rape and oppress the people of Israel every year at harvest. Does it surprise you that the devil always attacks you at the time of harvest? That every time that you think that God is about to be bountiful and blessing and pour out things, that the devil always attacks. That those attacks, the devil will fight you more over harvest than any other thing. We really put a target on our chest when we named our church Harvest. Because the devil hates harvest more than anything else. Because harvest means winning souls. Harvest means that people are getting saved. It means that lives are being changed. That means that the devil is losing his hold on people he thought he had. It means that victory is being won. Harvest is a time of rejoicing. Harvest is a time of being exceeding glad. Harvest is a time to celebrate. Harvest is a time to be thankful and to be grateful and to worship the Lord. And the devil hates that time. I said he hates that time. And he'll fight you more when you start winning souls than at any other time. Are you listening to me? More than any other time when you start helping people get loosed from sin and loose from addiction and loose from drugs and loose from perversion and loose from all the bad habits that people go through. If you are helping people get delivered and be freed, then expect the devil to fight you. Every year at the time of harvest, here came the Ammonites and they stole their harvest. So they got to a place, Faye, where they said, what's the use in planting? What's the use in caring for the crop? Every year, the Ammonites come and steal it. So why should we plant? Why should we water? Why should we fertilize? Why should we go through all of these physically hard things only to have it stolen in harvest time? Well, finally, somebody got tired of that and in this book of Judges, it tells about Jephthah. And they decided enough is enough. They weren't even leaving in their houses. You know what? They'd gone, Natalie, to live in caves because they were so afraid. Because every year, the Ammonites would come and tear down their house. So they cried to the Lord. And they sent to Tob, and they said, Jephthah, you're a mighty fighter. You're a mighty warrior. And we want you to be used of God to defeat the Ammonites. He said, what? You ran me off years ago because my mother was a harlot. 
You ran me away a long time ago and said to me, we don't want you. You're an illegitimate child. You have no place here. Leave us. Don't ever come back. Yes, but we need you so desperately now. And I believe God moved upon the heart of Jephthah because all of that pent-up anger and all of that pent-up feeling and emotion inside him, he realized, here's a way for me to be accepted. Here's a way for me to do something that I can make my way back. He said, I want to ask you a question. If I do this, and if I come back, and if I, I defeat the Ammonites, and we win the battle, what are you going to think about me then? They said, you'll be the same leader that we're making you right now. After you win that victory, you'll be the same leader. Jephthah gathered all of his men, and he brought them to the battlefield. Come on, Connor, and help me quit. Brought them to the battlefield. They're ready to engage. And God is reassuring Jephthah and telling him, I'm going to win this victory for you. You're going to fight and you're going to win and the children of Ammon will oppress you no more. And Jephthah made a rash vow. He said something to God that he didn't realize the weight of what he said. The Bible that I preach out of tells us, be cautious and don't make vows that you don't mean. This Bible that I preach out of says this, when thou vowest a vow, defer not to pay that vow, for it had been better that you never opened your mouth than to have vowed a vow and not kept it. In fact, in Psalm 50 and 14, the Bible said, Give thanks unto God and pay thy vows. And call upon me in the day of trouble and I will deliver thee and thou shalt glorify me. Maybe the reason he doesn't deliver is you've not kept your vows. Maybe the reason he doesn't answer your prayer is you've got some unfinished business that you need to take care of. God expects us to keep our vows. And Jephthah made this statement. He said, God, if you're going to do this, if you're going to give us victory, if you're going to do all of these things for us, then God, I promise you, the first thing that comes out to meet me when I get home, I'll give that to you. They fought the battle, and the Bible says they won the battle. They won against the Ammonites and slaughtered them and killed the enemies of the Lord that they would oppress them no more. And Jephthah starts home, a tired old soldier, and he's nearing home. And when he gets near the gate of his home, his daughter comes running out to meet him. And he cried out, he said, Alas, alas, daughter, thou art one that troubleth me, for I have opened my mouth unto God, and I cannot go back on it. You see, when we tell God, that we're going to do something. We need to be careful to do that. When we tell God, if, you, if you'll give me this, if you'll do that, if you'll work that out, if you'll just bring this, if you, I'll do such and such and I'll do this. 
I want to tell you, that's a very serious thing where you don't do what you bargained with God to do. Somebody needs to say amen. Some people take their church vows so lightly. But I want to tell you that God considers everything that we say to Him very serious. It's better that you don't open your mouth as to open your mouth and not mean it. How many whimsical things that we said or, or done that we didn't think about when we said it? There's a lot of controversy about what, what happened. He, uh, some theologians say he, he shut her up and never did allow her to marry, never to have children. There's all kind of consternation about that. But the bottom line is he kept his vow. He kept his vow. We've got four guys here. One couldn't control his anger. One couldn't get along without somebody propping him up. Timid. Another who was so lustful. And the last one who hurt his family and hurt other people by making statements and vows that he didn't have to make. It wasn't necessary that he make them, but he made them anyway. God didn't require it, but he said it anyway. Well, if God didn't require it, he, he probably don't, he, he's not really, no, God said you said it, and now you've got to do that. Quiet in this house, isn't it? God can use people with broken vows? Yes. God can use people who have weak faith? Yes. God can use people who are timid and can't stand on their own? Yes. And God can use you. And God can use you. And God can use you. Stand with me, please, all over this house. Pastor, this is a strange New Year's sermon. Well, what I'm trying to tell you that 2020, I don't know about tomorrow. It may bring sunshine. It may bring pain. I don't know. I don't know what lies in 2020. But I know who holds tomorrow. And I know who holds my hand. Many things about 2020 I don't pretend to understand, but I know who holds tomorrow, and I know who holds my hand. I'm telling you, with faith, well, my faith ain't at a peak right now, but God can use faith no matter what level it is. He uses people with weak faith. Don't let the devil allow thoughts to come into your mind and disqualify you. You can do all things through Christ who strengthens you. Well, I just couldn't, couldn't make it. Yes, you can. Quit saying that. I said, quit saying that. That don't live until you start giving it life by saying it. Quit saying that. I said, quit saying that. Quit dwelling on the pessimism and the negativism. Throw that old garment away. Amen. Put on the garment of praise. Put on a garment of faith. Put on a garment of hope. Put on a garment of positive confession. 
and say, God is with me and I'm never alone. I'm never alone. He'll never leave me. He'll never forsake me. He'll go with me all the way even to the very end of this thing. If I make my nest among the stars, he is there. If I make my bed in hell, he's there. Wherever I go, I can never go to a place and out-travel God's mercy and God's grace. Isn't that great to know? His mercy is from everlasting to everlasting. Wow. And I'm glad he holds our hand, don't you? And I'm glad 2020 holds some victories out there. I'm believing that in Jesus' name. I'm believing for every one of you in this house, there are victories that are just ahead, that there are great blessings just ahead. I, I, I choose to believe that great things are in store for this church. I believe, I choose to believe that God's hand is mighty to move in this church. I, I choose to believe that God is going to save, that God is going to fill with the Spirit, that God is going to grow this church in his name. I believe that, and I choose to believe it in Jesus' name. Hallelujah. And I know who holds tomorrow. About 30 seconds, could we do it? About 30 seconds, could we just give him the best praise you got? Best praise you got, the best you got. Bless the Lord, oh my soul, and all that is within me. Bless his holy name. Bless the Lord and forget not all of his benefits. Let everything that hath breath praise the Lord. Praise ye the Lord. Bless the Lord. Bless the Lord. His praise shall continually be in my mouth. Hallelujah. Praise God. Thank you, O oh God, for our meeting with you today and our encounter. And I ask you to go with people and help them and strengthen them and help them to realize that God doesn't use perfect people. He uses available people. And may all of us in this house, God, make ourselves available to you this coming year. And may great things be done in your name. Amen and amen.